It's good to see you here. It's good to be with you. Um, I do want to personally take a, a moment to uh, congratulate and welcome our uh, college freshmen into our fellowship group. Um, I know that this fellowship group is uh, considerably larger than life, and it's a little different, but we are so glad to have you here with us uh, here at Joint Heirs, and we can't wait to get to know you all better. Uh, as many of you know, since the beginning of the summer, we've been exploring what it means to live life in the church. Um, and while it may seem odd to revisit what it means to live life in the church, since we, by nature of coming to church and being a part of the activities of the church, are a part of the life of the church, we are revisiting the way we live life together in the church because it is easy to forget the biblical foundations of why we do what we do. Right? Once you get into the habit of doing something, it's just routine. So this evening, we're going to be exploring the topic of encouragement in the church from Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Now, those of you who are a part of ETC, you'll recognize this verse as the theme verse of our, fellowship, of our former fellowship group. And others of you, you probably recognize these verses when you're taught why it is important for you to go to fellowship and be a part of the church. Now, this passage is a familiar passage. It's commonly used to teach us to be consistent in our church attendance, but there is so much more to this passage than just a Bible verse that we use to remind each other that you have to be a part of the church. So we're going to take a closer look at this passage tonight, and we're going to observe two reasons Christians gather together to encourage one another in the church. Two reasons Christians gather together to encourage one another in the church. And so our first reason why Christians gather together to encourage one another in the church is the confidence of being forgiven. The confidence of being forgiven. Before we jump into our text, though, let's pray one more time. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're grateful to you for your loving kindness to us. And we know that as we approach a, a very familiar passage, it's easy for us to want to shut off and uh, to just kind of reflect on what we know already. And as we pray, Lord, that you would just give us the attitude of the Brians, that you would help us just to longingly, diligently study your word and, and try and see what treasures uh, that are there uh, that we've missed from before. And so, Father, we pray that you would uh, just give us hearts that are receptive to what your word has to say. And we pray that, Lord, you would just be with us, that you would honor yourself uh, through the preaching of your word during this evening. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're looking at the confidence of being forgiven. And uh, for those of you who have not studied the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews was written by an unknown author, although many speculate that it was most likely a sermon that was tr a sermon of Paul's that was transcribed or that it was written by a member of one of Paul's ministry teams. Now, the purpose of the author of Hebrews was to encourage and exhort Jewish Christians who were thinking about abandoning the faith, to return to Judaism due to political and social pressures, to keep the faith and continue to grow in Christ's likeness because of Christ's supremacy. So it was to encourage them to keep the faith and continue to grow in Christ's likeness because of Christ's supremacy. Hebrews 10 emphasizes Christ's supremacy particularly by highlighting how Christ's sacrifice on the cross was a superior sacrifice in comparison to all of the Old Testament sacrifices. That Old Testament sacrificial system required sacrifices to be made again and again and again, month after month, year after year, in order for the forgiveness of sins to be made possible. But in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices, Christ's sacrifice was offered once and for all. As the great high priest, Christ offered himself the spotless Lamb of God, as a sacrifice for all who will believe. And so in from rising from the dead, he, having offered that sacrifice as a high priest, sat down because his job was accomplished. So because of Christ's death on the cross, all who believe in him and have repented of their faith, uh, repented of their sins, can have confidence to go before God because we have received the righteousness Christ's righteousness by God's grace through his free gift of faith. And that leads us now to verse 23, where it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
Let us hold fast. This is the second exhortation that the author gives to his readers. And the first is found in verse 22, where he tells, the, he tells believers that they should draw near with a sincere heart in a full assurance of faith because their hearts have been sprinkled clean and their bodies have been washed with pure water. Now take note, when it says here in verse 23, let us, this is first person plural. This is something that we as Christians are supposed to do together. There's no one left out. The author of Hebrews is including himself in this exhortation as well. So as he says, let us, he says, all of us, we are to be doing this. We are all supposed to hold fast. So what are we supposed to hold fast to? Well, we are to hold fast the confession of our hope. And that should lead us to ask the question, well, what does that mean? What does the confession of our hope mean? Well, as some of you have probably guessed, the confession of our hope is simply what we say we believe. Namely, the hope of the forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ. It's the hope of forgiveness of sins because of Jesus Christ. Now, we often associate the word confession with the formal admission of guilt in our legal system, but that's not how it's being used here. Instead, what we're looking at is a statement of allegiance. So it's not... It's not an admission of guilt. Rather, what we have here is a statement of allegiance. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is exhorting believers to do in the light of the confidence that we have in Christ is to hold fast our profession of faith, to hold fast to our belief that our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. Now think back to the context of the book of Hebrews. We have Jewish Christians who are thinking about renouncing their faith, giving it up due to the persecution that they are facing from both Jews and Gentiles. But here, the author of Hebrews says, look at Christ's death. Look at Christ's resurrection. Don't give up your faith. Don't give up what you believe Christ did for you because of what other people are doing or saying to you. Instead of giving up, hold fast, hold tighter to your faith without wavering. Now, naturally, someone who is in pain, someone who is suffering, they're probably going to be wondering, why? You know, why? Why should I listen to you and double down on my hope in the gospel when I'm suffering for it? It's not worth it. And the author of Hebrews, almost anticipating this objection, says... For he who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. You see, brothers and sisters, the reason why we can have hope, the reason why we can have confidence in our salvation and in our standing before God is because the source of our hope is God, the one who gave us our hope in the first place. This is not merely just hoping that God will make it better eventually, but this reason for hope is couched in God's faithfulness. It's in the person of God. So because God has faithfulness as one of his defining characteristics, we have hope that he who promised us forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him will bring it all to pass. And so even if we have to deal with persecution and suffering in this life, it will be all worth it in the end. That's why in 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul calls the immense suffering he had experienced for the sake of the gospel as momentary light affliction. He's not making light of his suffering. He's not saying, oh, it was nothing. If you remember all that Paul went through, he almost died multiple times. He was whipped to the point of death, right up to the point of death, many, many times. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He spent nights, one night in the sea. He was chased to and fro, not allowed to share the gospel in certain cities. And he calls all of that momentary light affliction. 
Paul's not crazy. He calls it momentary light affliction because he understood that though suffering certainly hurt in this life, in comparison to the ultimate prize of finally being with God and experiencing all of God's promises, it would, be, it would all be worth it in the end. That the payoff in the end is worth it because we get to be with God. So that's why Paul says it is all momentary, light, affliction. It's not because he doesn't think suffering matters. It's because he says, what matters is what awaits me at the end. And that's God. And that's all that I want. And so I'm going to press forward. I'm going to hold tighter. Now you'll notice that because God is faithful, we are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And so does that mean... That if we waver in holding fast our faith, that God's promise might become void. Because it says that we're supposed to hold fast without wavering. And so the answer to that is absolutely not. Right? Without wavering does not mean that you can never waver or else God won't be faithful to his promises anymore. While we may waver at times in our confession, we can be assured of the fact that God does not waver in his faithfulness to those who are his. Despite the fact that we sin against him constantly and we make light of his grace. Our hope is sure because of the faithfulness of the one who gave us hope and his ability to keep his promises. Not because of our ability to make ourselves believe in him or because of any work that we do here on this earth. Though this expression without wavering indicates the way we hold fast by being firm in our confession, there are certainly times where we will struggle. We'll, we'll, we'll say to ourselves and maybe to others, do I really believe this gospel that I have been hearing all these years? And so how do we deal with that? If doubt can come, if doubt can come, how do we deal with those times when we may struggle with our faith? And the answer isn't necessarily an easy one. Because when people who are struggling, when people who are professing Christians are struggling with their faith, it isn't always for the same reasons. And each case needs to be addressed according to the needs of the individual rather than a cookie-cutter solution to getting back on track. And despite the highly individualized nature of caring for people who struggle, here are some general guidelines we can consider, we can all consider, either in counseling of ourselves when we doubt or when we are trying to help other people, uh, trying to care for them when they're doubting. Okay? So here's some of those general guidelines. Number one, don't be afraid to admit your doubt. Don't be afraid to admit your doubt. If you're doubting, that's okay. We all doubt. We're human. There are times when we're going to doubt. It's one of Satan's greatest lies to make you think that you are the only person ever to doubt. In fact, that's probably one of Satan's greatest lies ever in general is to make you think that you're the only one ever to experience anything. You aren't the first, and you won't be the last. If doubt was a disqualifier, think about this, the apostles would have been disqualified from being saved a long time ago, right? Early in Jesus' ministry, they would have been disqualified because they saw all of Jesus' works, and yet they still doubted. So, while not everyone you may talk to may feel equipped to talk to you about your, the, about your doubt with you, this doesn't mean that we don't want you to ask questions. We do want for you to ask questions. Feel free to ask questions. You can ask me. You can ask uh, Pastor Ray. You can t ask any of the counselors here. You can talk to anybody. Right? Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to admit your doubt because that allows for us to be able to know how to care for you, how to pray for you. Secondly, we're to be careful about how we go searching for answers. Okay, be careful about how you go searching for answers. Even scholars and pastors can get derailed by some of the strange things that they find on the Internet. The Internet 
is a convenient place to look because you can go look at sermon archives anywhere. You can go look at blog posts anywhere. But it's also a minefield full of fake authorities calling you to follow after them. One of the most tragic things that has happened recently, uh, my alma mater, uh, one of our professors who's been teaching in Israel for many, many years, decades, he renounced the faith. He left the faith. He denied that Jesus Christ was actually the Son of God. And when our fellow professors asked him why he came to that conclusion, how he came to that conclusion, he said that it was because of a study of the original languages, and he realized that perhaps the phrase Son of God could be used of anyone. It's been used of God's servants. It was used of Adam. And so he went online and he looked at some other resources and he, realized, and he came to the conviction on his own that Jesus Christ was not the Son of God. This is heartbreaking. That a man who loved the Lord, the man who served faithfully for decades, sharing the gospel and helping students see the veracity of the scriptures and the awesomeness of God denying the core, one of the core doctrines in our faith because he went on the internet and decided that some silly person on YouTube was more authoritative than the gospel. So be careful when you go, in terms of how you go searching for answers. A third way that we can consider is pray. Pray. Admit your struggles to our God and ask for help to believe and understand, much like the father who struggled to believe that Jesus could heal his daughter in Mark 9. Ask others to pray for you too. This is not something that you just say, oh, well, I'm doubting, so I'm just going to live my life the way that I want to live it, and I'm not going to pray to God. I'm just going to just try living without God for a little while. I pray. Another thing you can do is you search the scriptures. This is the fourth thing that you can do. You can search the scriptures. Though at times, the truthfulness of the scriptures may be the very reason why we doubt, or at least the reason why we start to doubt, we're doubting the truthfulness of scriptures. They are the only source that should be examined if we're struggling in our doubt of the Bible or of God. If you are questioning whether the scriptures are true or whether what God says about himself is true, why would you look to other sources to determine whether the Bible is telling the truth about itself or about God? Why would you look at that? If you're going to put the Bible on trial, don't look at other people. Don't look at what other philosophers say. Put the Bible on trial itself. Read it for itself. Is it consistent with itself? Because if it is indeed the very word of God reflecting who he is in all of its contents, then it will not contradict itself. And then you can find some of that assurance. You can, you know, some of these things you can struggle with and you might need a little extra help. And that's okay. We can help you with that. Right? But we need to put the scriptures, we need to be examining the scriptures when we're struggling with that doubt. Not looking to what other people have to say. Right? It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that the Bible is the very word of God. It's God-breathed. It comes forth from God with the power to equip every Christian to full maturity. And if the Bible is supposed to be internally consistent with itself, then this is what, this is what we should be studying if we're wondering about its truthfulness. Right? The Bereans in Acts 17, they were intrigued by what Paul had to say to them about Jesus. Instead of looking to their religious leaders, instead of running to the rabbis or the other lawyers, what did they do? They went to the scriptures. Right? They went to the scriptures to see whether Paul, what Paul was saying to them was consistent with what the scriptures said. The scriptures alone have the authority. And so if you're, gonna, if you're doubting that, Check the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Maybe it's an issue of you don't know the Bible as well as you think you do. Right? Check the scriptures. And the fifth thing, the fifth guideline 
that we can uh, that we can consider is think about what caused you to doubt and why you're tempted to doubt. Think about what caused you to doubt and why you're tempted to doubt. Not every case of doubt in someone's life is the same. And so we must examine why we are being tempted to doubt and see if we or someone we know can identify what triggered that doubt so we can ask the right questions of our questions. Seems a little odd, right? But you want to ask the right questions about your questions. You want to understand where those questions came from. And once you understand where those questions came from, then you can begin to deal with the doubt appropriately. Once you ask the right questions, you'll be able to find the right answers. Those are just some general guidelines. They're not meant to solve all the problems of someone who's doubting. They are good starting points for us to consider when we have conversations about doubt. Now, returning to our point of why we should gather together to encourage one another, the author of Hebrews, he's calling for all Christians to consider as the foundation of our unwavering confession the faithfulness of God. He's calling us to consider as the foundation of our unwavering confession, the faithfulness of God. If God is faithful to keep all of his promises, he will be faithful to forgive us of our sins, no matter how many of them we commit, no matter how bad they are, and he'll continue to work in us to make us like his son. And we are, we are all called to do this together because we as a church, when we gather together, we are called to proclaim our hope We are called to proclaim the good news of forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ to the world. And as we all hold fast to this confession of hope, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the opposition is, we demonstrate to the world the power of the gospel. We demonstrate to the world the power of the gospel. And as we, brief, as we explored briefly in our discussion on doubt, this confession, it can be hard to hold when it's all, all, it's all dependent on us, right? When we're all on our own and you're having discussions with people who might seem to know the Bible better than you and they're defeating you at every single point when you're trying to evangelize to them, it can be hard to deal with that all on your own. And that's why God gives the church. When times get tough, We are there for one another. And when we're suffering, we're there for one another. When one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body hurts with it. So we're here for one another. We're here to encourage each other in our profession of faith to the world, but we're also here to encourage each other in our individual walks as well. We encourage one another. We exhort one another to look to the scriptures, to look to God. When things don't make sense, And we can't find an answer on our own. Our brothers and sisters are the ones that we rely on to understand. God gives us the gift of his family to continue to point us to the hope that we have, the confidence that we have in the faith because of his faithfulness to us. Continuing on in the faith, pressing on through doubt is a mark of being saved. It's a mark. It's a characteristic. It's an indicator. It doesn't mean that staying in the church and doing a lot of church things means that you're definitely saved. But it's an indicator. It is an indicator that you're saved. True faith in Christ will be proved over time. True faith in Christ will be proved over time. If we say that we believe in Christ, but we do not have a love for him, We don't have a desire to know his word better, to be with our brothers and sisters and to be encouraged and to encourage. We really need to take a step back and ask ourselves if we truly believe in God or not. It could be that you're just a baby Christian and that you need to take some time to grow. You know, holding fast or firmly maintaining our faith is something that we all need to learn how to do. Sometimes once someone gets saved, they They pray the prayer. We're just like, okay, cool. Welcome to the family. Now, the way that you grow is to read your Bible and to pray. Okay, bye. Right, we just leave them hanging. 
And we're just like, oh, I expect, I mean, I expect for you to know how to do this all on your own, even though you've never done this before, right? We're just like, oh, prayer? That's easy. It's just talking to God. And we don't teach them how to pray. When we talk about Bible reading, we're just like, well, you're, you know, you're an adult, so you know how to read. So just read. And so it could be that you're just a baby Christian and you just don't know what to do. And that's what the body of Christ is here for. We're here to help you grow in those ways. We're help, here to help you understand how to navigate some of the harder aspects of the Bible. And so it could be that you are genuinely saved. It's just you need a little help. You need a little help to grow. But if you don't want to grow, if you don't really care about being a part of the family of God. You don't really love him. You're just here because, well, you know, I said the prayer. I give it, I, you know, I come in and I give my obligatory attendance card or whatever, and I, I, put, my, I, put, I, put, my, I put my time in and I'm, I'm good. If that's it, if that's all that's a part of your faith, you seriously need to consider whether you have saving faith in God. Because saving faith in God is a faith that drives you to love him, to want to know more about him. It is entirely different from an intellectual acknowledgement of who he is. It's entirely different for just believing in God for his benefits. I'll believe in God if he gives me good health, if he gives me the job that I want if he gives me what I ask for. I'll believe in God if he gives me those things, right? Or perhaps it's even, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll believe in God if he gets me out of hell, but I'm still going to live the way that I want to live my life. No. That kind of belief in God, that doesn't save. That kind of belief in God, that's not true faith. That's the same kind of belief in God that the demons have and that James describes where it's like, we believe God. We know who he is. We know what he's done. So what? A true faith in God, a true love for God, or a true faith in God is a faith that loves God, that wants to know more about him, that cares about what he cares for, that wants to honor him because we love him. God is faithful to keep his promises. And this is what we as believers are called to remind each other of when we gather together. We proclaim this truth, this hope of forgiveness of sins to the world and to one another. And this is what, this is what drives our hope to be with Christ. If you are here this evening and you realize that you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, that you've just been playing the church game for however many years that you've been on this earth, there is hope for you this evening. There is hope for you now. God's forgiveness is vast. It will cover all of your sins. He is gracious towards you. He's patient towards you, wanting for every single one of you to believe. And he loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for you. Not only that, but he raised him from the dead so that when you believe in him, you can have his righteousness. That is the hope that is for you. That you are no longer guilty in God's eyes when you believe in Christ and turn from your sins. You are declared not guilty. Absolutely righteous. That is what God is willing to do for you if you believe. And that hope is available to you this evening. So I plead with you, don't wait for tomorrow. Don't wait for the end of your life because you don't know when that may come. You don't know when the Lord says the time is up. Consider that. We now go to our second reason that Christians gather together to encourage one another in the church. And that is the hope of the coming day. 
the hope of the coming day. Verse 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the third exhortation from the author of Hebrews to the Jewish believers. In light of Christ's saving work on the cross, and he tells them that they are to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Now, even though we have two actions here that we as Christians are called to do, love and good deeds, these two actions, they represent one idea. One idea. Christians are to consider how to encourage or provoke one another to love. We're encouraged to Think about how we can provoke one another to love one another. This word stimulate, it refers to an intense emotion, almost always referring to the provocation of something negative, like anger. And here, the author of Hebrews uses this word to help Christians understand the importance of loving one another through word picture. Right? Imagine you're in a room with two kids, and one of them is constantly going up to the other and jabbing him in the stomach. Right? First time, you probably just kind of let it go. Right? It's like, okay, whatever. Go have your fun. But then he come, the, kid, the other kid who's doing the poking comes back, and he pokes him again and again and again and again and again. Eventually, the one being poked is going to be provoked to anger. They were going to be provoked into retaliation. And so the next time the other kid comes up to poke him, bam! Right hook to the face. Now instead of provocation to anger, think about this. Right? We as believers, when we gather together, we are to consider, we're to think about how we are to provoke one another To the point where all that we want to do is love one another and encourage one another to do good deeds for other people in the church because of that love for one another. All right, think about that. It's kind of weird because when we think about provoke, it's that one to get angry. Right? But here, we are supposed to gather together to encourage one another to egg each other on in our love for one another. And our love for the other people in this church. Right? It's not just a joint heirs thing. It's a joint heirs thing that we spread out to the giggers, to the lifers, to the people in focus, to the Cantonese department. We are to provoke one another to consider how we will all love the rest of the church, how we will all serve the rest of the church. And it's not out of obligation but because you've been encouraged so much, you've been provoked so much that you're bursting at the seams. You're trying to find an opportunity to share the love that you've experienced with others. And this is the idea that the author of Hebrews has when he tells us that we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of passion that goes into it. And so in verse 25, he explains how we can provoke one another to love and good deeds by first explaining what we shouldn't do. Okay, he first defines it by what we shouldn't do. And he says that we should not forsake our own assembling together. Now, the word forsake or forsaking, it's the same word that is used throughout the, the Greek Old Testament to describe when Israel abandoned God and stopped following him. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that Israel did that a lot, didn't they? Right? Again and again and again, they forsook the God of the covenant. They forsook the God that loved them. And so here, remember, the author of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. Here, he evokes this thought with this word. He says, do not forsake the assembling together. We're not to abandon the body like Israel abandoned God. So, we might be tempted to think, who actually believes this? 
right? Which Christian actually believes that they don't need the church? Some of you might be thinking that. Some of you know that there are some people out there who think, I don't need the church. All I need is a personal relationship with God, right? That's what I was told when I was evangelized. All I need is a personal relationship with God, so I'm going to study the Bible on my own. I don't need the church to study the Bible. And at that point, you can snap back and say, well, if that's what you believe, then you obviously haven't been studying your Bible because that's not what it says. But anyway, that's not how we deal with it. Um, All true Christians will know that that's not true. As we saw in verse 23, and even in these two verses, God gives us, God gave us fellow believers for a reason. He intended for us to work together to accomplish his purposes, to encourage one another, to help one another. You know, you even think about the fact that when Jesus sent off his disciples to go do their uh, missionary work, he sent them in pairs. He didn't send them alone. He gives us the body for a reason. And so this prohibition from forsaking our own assembling together is given because, think about it, if we are to be so characterized by love for one another that we are to provoke one another to love and good deeds, how can we do that? How can we spur one another on towards love and good deeds if we're by ourselves? Right? If you are by yourself, who are you going to provoke? Nobody. Who are you going to encourage to love other people when you don't feel like it? Who's going to challenge you to grow when you're feeling tired after a day of work and all you'd rather do is just watch TV? Who's going to encourage you? Who's going to challenge you? Nobody. One commentator remarked, love cannot grow or be stimulated in the lives of Christians if they keep one another at a distance. Therefore, every opportunity of coming together and enjoying their fellowship in faith and hope must be welcomed and used for mutual encouragement. Of course, this doesn't mean that every single one of your nights should be occupied with a church event. For some of you, it's already pretty close, right? And you know, thank you for your faithfulness. We appreciate that. But nobody has the stamina to survive that. Right? Nobody. But what this does mean is that we ought to place a value on the times when we are able to meet with one another. Right? Meeting, meeting together on Sundays is absolutely important. We should definitely not neglect meeting together on Sundays because that's the main time that we as a church body gather together to worship our God as a family. And that's why Sundays are so important. But we also want to take advantage of any other time, any of our other opportunities to meet up throughout the week too, whether it be on a Friday night like you are right now, right? Flock groups or discipleship meetups. The Christian faith is not lived in a vacuum. And as a result, we ought to strive to make the most of our time together. We ought to seek that. We ought to long for that. But what if when you do come to fellowship, when you do come to flock group, when you do, well, hopefully not when you go to discipleship, but when you do go to church or some combination of those things, you don't get anything out of it. Nobody comes to talk to you. When we dismiss You're just sitting there all by yourself. And you're left wondering, why do I even bother coming? Why should I come to church if I'm going to be ignored? I might as well stay home. Why should I bother going to church family picnic if all I'm going to be doing is sitting under the shade in my own little spot and no one's going to come talk to me? Why should I bother going to church family retreat if no one will minister to me? You're just talking to the same people over and over again for for like five minutes and then that's it. Well, this is where the positive aspect of provoking one another to love and good deeds comes in. We are all, all of us, to encourage. We are all to encourage, to engage in the act of encouraging one another. 
Yeah, I know. And I understand that it can be difficult to put yourself out there every week if no one's willing to respond in kind to you. Especially because you figure people should know better if they're a part of the church. Right? But instead of judging people who fail to come up to you and talk to you and abandon or devalue the fellowship that we have with one another since no one's going to talk to us anyway, let's see what we can do on our part about correcting what is wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm actually very, very pleased with the job that you guys are doing at how as the college and career group have merged together. You guys are doing a fantastic job in terms of caring for one another. And yeah, I, I don't have... I don't have complaints, but let's make sure that we continue to strive to excel still more in our love for one another. In order to solve that problem of people feeling left out, of people feeling abandoned, we all, including the ones who feel left out, need to consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Or even if nobody wants to talk to you, even if you're left alone, don't be alone. Get up. Go to other people and try and talk to them. And take an interest in who they are, even if they're not willing to do that to you. Or you will find someone who will reciprocate. And if you find yourself being the person who brushes other people off because you don't want to talk to them, Why? Why is that? Right? Consider that. One of the things that I recently taught our high schoolers at our camping retreat, it was actually last week, um, is I, I taught them from Mark 12. Mark 12, what is the greatest commandment? Right? The greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus pairs those two commandments together when only asked for what is the greatest commandment because they go hand in glove, because they are so related to one another, they are so knit together that if you have a problem with your interpersonal relationships, that means that you probably have a problem with your relationship with God. Think about that. If there is something deficient in your relationship with God, it's going to affect your relationship to other people. And if there is a deficiency in your love for others, there's an indicator that you might not fully understand what it means to love God. 1 John tells us that one of the marks of a true believer is that we love one another. Right, beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so we, as a fellowship group, we should strive to love one another. No one should be left alone, ever. Ever. And if that does happen, if that does happen, well, brother or sister who got left alone. Don't pity yourself. Don't look down upon those who fail to love you. Rather, you be obedient to God. You do what God wants, and you go love, even if they won't love you. Yeah, there are some of us who are a little more naturally gifted at speaking with others, but when you look at verses 24 to 25, there's no provision here for people who are only gifted in encouragement or exhortation to do all the talking when it comes to provoking one another to love and good deeds. It's all of us, right? It doesn't say, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds if you have the gift of encouragement, if you have the gift of exhortation. It doesn't say that, right? Let us, first person, plural, all of us, including me, all of us, we are to do this. Right? The idea that you have to have the spiritual gift of encouragement or exhortation in order to be an active member of the body is unbiblical. 
It's a result of bad study, bad teaching. Right here, it says that we are all to provoke one another to love and good deeds, that we are all to encourage each other. You don't need particular giftedness to care for one another in this way. You simply need to have the desire for faithfulness and obedience to what God has called for each and every believer to do. Let me say that again. You don't need particular giftedness in order to care for one another in this way. All you need is a desire to be faithful and to obey what God has called you to do. That's all you need. When it comes to the service in the church, that's all we need is a commitment to faithfulness and obedience. You might not be most gifted, but if you want to be faithful, if you want to do what God wants you to do, you're going to do it anyway, even if you're not the best at it. It's okay. You can still serve. And then when someone who, uh, who is a little bit more gifted comes along, then you can let them kind of take over. But when it comes to these general commands, it doesn't matter whether you're not particularly gifted. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. If you are convinced that this is what God's word says and that this is what he wants you to do, then you should want to please him, even if it means it's hard work. Right? Even if it means... That introverts, you have to give a little bit more of yourself. Even after a long work week and, and especially tiring Friday or Saturday. Even if you have nothing left in the tank. That's where you can pray. You can pray to God and ask him for strength because you don't have any more. Right? You may still feel like you're out of it when you're conversing and that your conversations are tough, but at least you're relying on God rather than yourself. Now, before we look at some more practical implications of stimulating one another to love and good deeds, let's take a quick look at why we are supposed to do this. Notice that the author says here at the end of verse 25 that we are to do these things. We are to provoke one another to love and good deeds all the more, or, and we're to be encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. It can also refer to the day of the, a part of the day of the Lord. Right? And so in light of Christ's imminent return, in light of the fact that he is for sure coming again, Christians want to be found doing the Lord's work not being lazy or slothful. In Philippians 3, 12 to 14, Paul explains to the Philippians that though he is longing for glorification, he knows that he's not arrived there yet. And he knows it won't come until either he dies or Christ returns. And yet, despite not having achieved the Christ-likeness that God wants them to have, Paul doesn't just sit back with his feet up on the desk arms behind his head and say, all right, God, give it to me. When's it coming? No. Instead, he presses on to achieve God's purpose in saving him. He presses on to be like Christ. And so if we love God, if we desire to be with him one day because we believe that he is truly our soul's ultimate delight, And we will not be complacent in our Christian walk. We won't just sit back waiting for glorification. Instead, we will press on for that. We will work as hard as we can to get as close as we can to be like Christ in this life. Because we want to be with God so much that we will do whatever it takes to get a taste of that on this side of eternity. Because that love for Christ and that passion for Christ is what ought to drive us in our Christian faith. That is why, in light of the day that's coming, we, 
as believers should strive with all that we have, dependent on, upon God and his grace, of course, to love one another and to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to not forsake the gathering together of believers and constantly encouraging one another. Our love for God should motivate us strongly to love others in the family of God. Now, what are some ways that we can grow in this? Well, the easiest way that we, we can start practicing this tonight is by making sure that we greet any newcomers who are here. And we have a lot of newcomers here. Some of the, the, the life graduates, the high school graduates that are here, um, they're, you know, they're strangers to many of you. So, well, without completely overwhelming them, get to know them. Right? Try and love on them. If there are other people here that you don't know, get to know them too. Right? Reach out to them. Try and love on them. Right? And this is not just a Friday night thing either. Right? Do it tomorrow at Church Family Picnic. Do it on Sunday too. And even if you kind of know someone, try and get to know them a little bit better. Ask them about themselves. Try and find out what their interests are and take an interest in their interests. You know, at uh, the Master's University, I was an RA, and I was hanging out with the resident director of our dorm, and we had it was it was welcome. Or it was a it was a visiting week, and we had this one guy from Georgia come by, really cool guy, um, and uh, he was really into competitive biking. Now, I know my RD. He could care less about biking, and this guy, like. He's about being inside. He had a bunch of orchids in his, in his apartment. He, he had Uggs that he would put on and just sit there and watch, the, watch uh, TV. He loved his comfort. He would not do anything outside. He didn't care anything about biking. But I watched him. I sat there for 30 minutes as he peppered this guy from Georgia with questions about biking, the difference between a racing bike and a road bike, all this stuff that I know he could care less about, all because he wanted to love on this visiting student, this potential student from Georgia. Even if you could care less about Fortnite or about, or about someone's actuary job, even if you could care less, ask them about it. Ask them about them. Take an interest in them. And strive to love on them because they're one of God's people too, okay? Take an interest in one another. Another thing that you can do is commit to meeting up with church people outside of Sunday. <gasps> Shocker, right? Why would we do that? You know, even if it's just coming to Friday night, make a commitment to be here and to be present. To be present, not just to just sit here and say, well, I came to church, I'm good. no. Engage with other people. Talk to your brothers and sisters. See how they're doing. Ask them if they have any prayer requests. Even just engage with small, small talk with them. Engage with them. Don't just be here. Right? Be present while you're here. And if they don't end up doing the same to you, don't take it personally. Right? As far as it depends on you, you do what you believe is, would be best to honor God. Now, I understand that verse 25 primarily refers to Christians being together on Sundays. But try and get together with your brothers and sisters at other times, too, so you can encourage and be encouraged to live for what God wants in your life rather than what our culture tells you to desire. And I'm not trying to impose some extra-biblical legalistic requirement on you, but what I am saying is we should strive to have more to our Christian life than getting that church attendance box checked on Sunday. And then the rest of our lives are pretty much whatever we make of it. Another way that we can practically try and live this out is think about how you can serve others in the church. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a formal ministry either. Right? How can you informally be a blessing to others in the church? Arrange to meet up with someone for boba or for coffee. If you know that there's a grad student or a college student in our midst who might be a little stressed, 
take him to lunch. It's small, but it's an expression of care. Are are there any widows or widowers in the church that we could be mindful of, that we need to care for? Are there any people who they wish that they could be here, but because of their physical limitations, they can't? Can we offer them a ride? Right? Simple, small. That's all part of what it means to be in the body and to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Right? Or how can we, perhaps, on an informal basis, love on our community? You have a heart for evangelism? How are you going, you know, let's find some other people. On an inform- it doesn't have to be a formal thing. Let's go find some other people. Let's go evangelize. Let's go to SF State. Let's go downtown. How can you be a part of that? What are some other ways that you can serve the church in that way? And then the last thing, the last thing I'll have you consider is just to be in prayer for one another. Right? Find out about the prayer requests that other people have and keep them in prayer. Like actually pray for them. Not just, oh, I'll pray for you. And then you know you see them next week. Oh shoot, I totally forgot. Yeah, I prayed for you. Right? No. But actually pray for them. You can do that on your own, doing your own devotion time, or you could even go join prayer ministry on Monday nights, whatever it may be. Just be committed to pray. And those are all just some of the ways. There's some of the ways that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There are plenty of others, right? But let's focus on taking little steps, right? I think sometimes we get so hyped up, so pumped up, that we just want to do everything. Right, let's think about some little practical steps that we can do. Just kind of build up to doing more. Okay. For some of you, this will be really easy. And for others of you, this is going to be hard. That's okay. Right, be patient with, with one another. Try and be understanding of one another. Strive as best you can to seek to honor God in the way that we encourage one another. Whether it be explicitly or implicitly to love God and to do what pleases Him. This evening, we looked at the topic of encouragement in the church by exploring two reasons why we, as a church, should gather together to encourage each other. It was the confidence of being forgiven and the hope of the coming day. True Christians are motivated by a desire to love and honor God in coming alongside one another and encouraging each other to carry on even when the times are tough. And we do this not just because we have to, but because the mutual hope, the great confidence that we have in the one whom we placed our faith in gives us a desire to grow in love for one another. And as we grow in love for one another, we know that this is not something that we do on our own, but something that we do with the rest of the body as well. And so if we as a church are going to succeed in doing what God has placed us here on this earth to do, we must do it together. We don't tell you to come to church just because it's good for you. We don't tell you to come to church because we're really into our numbers and we want, we want to see how you can potentially impact your giving. We don't care about that. Ultimately, the reason why we gather together as a church is because we want to encourage one another in our faith and in our witness as a church. In our witness uh, as a church so that God can receive all the honor and all the glory that he deserves. So let us strive together to honor our Lord in our life together by encouraging one another in whatever, whatever form it, in whatever form it appears. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to you for your loving kindness to us, for the surety of our faith, how that confidence of being forgiven gives us all the confidence in the world to hold fast to that faith, to hold fast that confession of hope without wavering because you are faithful. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to consider how we might provoke one another to love and good deeds 
even now as we dismiss and as we begin to fellowship with one another, we pray that, Lord, you would even give us the courage, the strength, the energy to see how other people are doing and to meet new people and to show them your love. Lord, we know that it's not easy, that we're going to struggle, that some of us may struggle with this, and we do pray for much grace. But we pray that, Lord, you would help set in our minds a desire above all else to honor you, to glorify you, to do what pleases you, rather than to be comfortable ourselves. Give us this conviction, we pray, in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.